Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. 804 days, that's how long academic and Islamic studies lecturer Dr Kylie Moore-Gilbert spent in prison in Iran, much of it in solitary confinement. She was held hostage by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, which falsely accused her of being a foreign spy. She was released just over two years into a 10-year sentence as part of a diplomatic deal brokered with the Australian government. And Kylie's written a memoir of her ordeal called The Uncaged Sky. And in it, she details her arrest and imprisonment in Evan and Kachuk prisons. Uh, many of us followed Kylie's story via the media while she was in prison and in the uncaged sky she tells the story of what was really happening, her friendships, the interrogations and mind games, uh, when much of what we were hearing was false or only partially true and certainly we had very limited information about what she was going through and Kylie it's great to have you at Triple R, welcome. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. And, uh, I mean, it, yeah, it's great to have you. And, I mean, you left Iran at the end of uh, November 2020, which is just 18 months ago, and you've got this memoir now, and we're asking you to tell some of your story over the next 25 minutes or so, for which we're really grateful. But, you know, what's motivating you to tell and retell your story, which inevitably takes you back to, to those prisons? <sighs> Yeah, it, it isn't always easy to sort of continually be bringing these things up again and again. But I feel like at this point, I've kind of detached from it in a way and, and disassociated my emotional side from recounting these events. It, it was quite a, a healing experience for me, though, to write the book. And I felt that, you know, being able to tell the complete truth about what happened to me and through doing that process, a lot of those events um, within myself as I was writing. It was quite healing. And, uh, you know, there was so much misinformation and so many lies about me that was promoted by, you know, the Iranian state broadcaster, for example, uh, and, you know, lots of trolls on social media, et cetera. And I felt actually quite liberated to be able to tell my side of the story. And also it was my duty. I mean, I, I, I promised several people in prison because I made many friends there with other prisoners, that when I got out, I would tell the truth about what was happening to them as well as to myself. Yeah, and and the book is is full of of really fine details as well. It runs for for just over 400 pages. And I wonder if if it surprised you that you were able to to sort of excavate all these these different things that happened over over the more than two years that you spent um, in, in Iran in prison. It didn't necessarily surprise me. I, I have quite a vivid memory of the experience, not not the very beginning uh, of my arrest, because I think I was quite traumatised and in shock for the first few weeks. But once my mind settled down, particularly the last couple of years that I spent in prison there, I actually made an active effort to recall details and I spent a lot of time, I had a lot of time on my hands in in my cell and I spent a lot of time memorising, you know, meetings, conversations, uh, details of of things people had told me, things I'd seen. Uh, And I also spent a lot of time unconsciously, I think, ruminating on events that had occurred and and that solidified it in my memory as well. So um, I guess I I have quite a detailed memory deliberately and otherwise of what happened to me. And 
Actually, I'd wrote probably more than twice that amount um, when I was writing the draft mm. of the book and, and I had quite a painful process of cutting it down into that 400 pages. So it just sort of spilled out of me, really. And um, I, I'm amazed that my memory retained all of those details. But at the same time, I actually worked hard knowing I couldn't take any written material out with me, I worked hard to, to recall as much as I could. And I, I mean, it'd, it'd be good for listeners who, I mean, many of us, as I said at the beginning, followed your story best we could and cared very deeply about um, the, what happened to you, but we didn't have much to go on. How, I mean, tell our, our listeners, how did you end up there in Iran and, and become detained? And you do say in the book that you miscalculated the risks of traveling there. Well, thank you so much for your support and and for caring about me when I was in prison. You know, I had no idea that people in Australia even knew my name or that anybody knew what was happening to me outside of, you know, the, the few government bureaucrats within DFAT who were dealing with my case. And um, I, I wish I had have known at the time about this, you know, amount of support that regular average people in Australia, you know, were, were, were feeling for me when I was there because I often felt just so alone. So, yeah, it, it means a lot to me to hear that. Um, I, I travelled to Iran in September 2018 at the invitation of an Iranian university, actually, um, because I'm a, an academic or I was an academic working in Middle Eastern history and politics. Uh, I'd been invited to attend this academic seminar in Iran and I thought, okay, well, you know, they've invited me and I actually went and applied for my visa in advance with the embassy in Canberra because some um, Aussies can get visas upon arrival at the airport. But I thought, OK, well, you know, I am a scholar of this area and I have visited Israel in the past. I've visited many other Middle Eastern countries. I'll, um, I'll give them the opportunity to check me out. And they gave me the visa and, you know, everything seemed fine. My trip was approved by my university and I went and it was supposed to be just three weeks. The, the seminar itself went well. I met other academics in my field from overseas uh, and from Iran. And I thought, you know, everything was OK until probably the 24 hours before I, I tried to go to the airport and board my flight back to Australia. Yeah. And, and I mean, as you are sort of imprisoned and, and go through this really, you know, troubling experience of first being in a hotel and not really knowing what's going on and then being taken to, to Evan in, in initially a cell that was just two by two metres in size, um, which is just, you know, incredibly small and constricting. But but in those sort of, um, I suppose, early days, but also in the, the, the long time that you spent over there, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps repeatedly tried to get you to become a spy for them and of course they were they were accusing you of being a spy in in exchange for your freedom uh, how did you sort of navigate that and 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 did you ever actually consider you know taking them up on that offer given just how desperate your, your situation was that was really really difficult for me it became a kind of a war of attrition or a war of wills between myself and the revolutionary guards they from the first night of my arrest inquired with me casually, informally, as to whether I'd consider working for them. So I think this was on their radar from the very beginning, that I could be a potential um, informer for them. I think their idea was, I, you know, because I travel to the Middle East a fair bit, because I'm also a British citizen, that I could travel to some of these countries innocuously and, and collect information and send it back to them. 
And, you know, I've never been involved in any espionage. I don't know anything about it. I don't know the first thing about spying. So, of course, I was sort of said, no way, like, are you crazy? Um, and sort of brushed it off. And I think I was in such shock at the time that, you know, I, I couldn't really take it in any of that in. But later on, particularly as my trial approached and then following my conviction, and I was given a 10-year sentence um, for espionage for Israel, which is, you know, ridiculous, um, they used that to blackmail me and try to pressure me to work for them. And they said they would free me from prison if I agreed to be recruited. But I knew that I wouldn't actually really be free. And yeah. I did, not that I considered it, but I asked for more information about their offer. And I understood very quickly that I wouldn't be free. They, they'd let me out of prison, but I'd be entirely under their control. And I wouldn't. I didn't want to be a slave to this, you know, Islamist extremist group, which is actually classified as a terror organization by the United States. I mean, they're they're nasty people. They're they're not friendly, you know, <laughs> friendly guys. Yeah. And so I I didn't want to be in a situation where I was trapped in Iran under their control and forced to do all sorts of things that I probably wouldn't have wanted to do. So I I told them to piss off basically and. Um, that when I walked out of prison, I wanted to walk out as a free woman and not under their control. So um, they, they actually, I asked them, if you send me overseas to work for you, what's to stop me from simply just running away? Because they, you know, they have many Iranians that they recruit, but they have leverage over them. They have their family members, they have their properties, their assets, their life in Iran that they can blackmail them with. But I said, well, I have no connection to Iran. Once I leave this country, how do you control me? And they said, we have operatives everywhere, even in Australia. And if you run away, we know where you live mm -hmm. and we'll kill you. So um, it was a no-brainer to me, really. Yeah. <laughs> I said, piss off. And, yeah, and, I mean, having – and you you do detail that throughout and for those reasons, some of you know, the reasons that you just outlined there, Kylie, that you ran a strategy of resistance, really. I mean, it is phenomenal that you had the strength to do that. How – how did you maintain that over such a long period of time, two years, three months? I wasn't, I wouldn't call myself a strong person for all of that time. And I certainly had moments of great weakness and despair and depression. And, you know, I, I, I'm proud of myself for fighting back and resisting, but I certainly had moments of weakness as well. But, you know, when you've taken everything away from someone, when you've dehumanised them to the point of being a number rather than a person with a, with a name and a personality and individuality, you know, I was called 29. My, my prison number was 97029 and it used to enrage me when they'd call me 29 and I'd used to yell at them, I'm, a, I'm not a number, I'm a person, you know, my name's Kylie. But, you know, when they've re reduced you to such a state, you literally have nothing to lose and a person with nothing to lose is, is actually quite a dangerous person because... You'll do anything. You don't care anymore. And I think that apathy that I developed, you know, several months after my incarceration really pushed me to resist because I thought, well, I don't care what they do to me. They can't take anything away from me that they haven't already taken. So I'm going to just reclaim some semblance of dignity and push back. And it's something to do as well, rather than sitting in my cell each day, twiddling my thumbs, plotting and scheming ways of resisting. Uh, coming up with, with plans alongside other prisoners in other cells who, whom I was in touch with, 
um, secretly, you know, that that was something to do as well. Um, and, yeah, I really just had nothing to lose and I wanted to express my anger and frustration at what was being done to me as an innocent person. Yeah, speaking with Carly, Dr. Carly Moore-Gilbert, the Melbourne academic who was held in an Iranian, well, two really Iranian prisons for a total of 104 days. Um, she has a brand new book out called The Uncaged Sky. And on that communication you had with, with other prisoners, I mean, you know, in many ways, this is a, it's a really dark story, but there's humanity at the heart of the story that you tell, not just with, with the fellow prisoners that you encounter, but also even with, with some of your your captors. But I wonder if you can take us to how you manage to have communication and, and even sort of reciprocal exchange with some of those fellow prisoners um, throughout your time in Iran and also the, the really you know deep friendships you, you formed with, with some of those women. Yeah, that's a really good point to make. Um, initially, and I recount this in greater detail in the book, initially over a period of weeks I'd managed to um, get in touch illicitly with another cell, which first of all was opposite mine when I was in solitary confinement, opposite mine in the hall. And because I didn't speak Farsi and the guards didn't speak English, I was always struggling to communicate what I needed to the prison guards in these early weeks. And these guys in the other cell opposite mine heard me stammering away in English, trying to communicate that I needed the toilet, I needed to see a doctor or, or whatever my problem was. And they really felt for me because nobody could understand what I wanted. And I was obviously in great distress and, and very upset as well. And um, they reached out to me and they took a great risk to do that. And initially it was in the uh, outdoor exercise area, which was literally just a balcony about 10 metres in length attached to the women's unit. Um, and we were taken there for half an hour in the morning, half an hour in the evening each day just to pace backwards and forwards and get some fresh air. And they, um, these women left a small bag of nuts uh, for me and a very, very small letter written on a piece of toilet paper uh, inside that bag in a pot plant in that communal exercise area and draw my, drew my attention to it. And uh, luckily I managed to stuff it into my underwear and, and take it back to my cell and read it without the guards discovering and then destroyed it afterwards. And um, basically we, I, I managed to steal a biro pen and keep it hidden uh, over, you know, a month or two of my incarceration. And these guys also had a secret pen and we started a note passing network using initially the, the exercise area and then moving into the common um, bathroom clothes washing area where we would hang our, our um, hand-washed uniform, prison uniform on a series of racks and slipping notes into those. We, we formed a system for doing that. And later on, I actually managed to speak to them through an air conditioning vent, which linked another cell I'd been moved to with theirs. And um, I got in touch with a second cell down the hall and, and we started to develop this network. Occasionally we'd be caught and we'd also be caught speaking in the AC vent from time to time too. Uh, our pens were sometimes discovered and taken away, but we always managed to find a new way to communicate with one another because it gave us hope, all of us. And the solidarity and friendship that you develop with other prisoners is is actually really strong and intense when you're all in, you know, in such a pressure cooker and, and scary environment. So... These guys really saved me. They they opened my eyes. They enlightened me as to where I was, who had arrested me, what I should and shouldn't do in interrogation, what could potentially happen next. All of these things which I knew nothing about, 
um, these fellow prisoners helped me with and, and told me about. And um, they really gave me strength and hope and the ability to just keep going. Um, about nine or ten months after that, I was actually moved into a cell with two of them, Nilufar and Sepiden, and I devote the book, uh, dedicate the book, um, The Young Cages Guy that I wrote, to these two phenomenal women. And, um, you know, they're all innocent. All of these women are innocent, just like I was, stitched up and, and caught up in something bigger than themselves that's been politicised. Uh, these women became so close to me that I call them my sisters. And, you know, sadly, they're still in Evan prison more than four years after their arrest. Uh, and, you know, it, it breaks my heart that some of my fellow prisoners who I became so close to are still there and still suffering through what I have miraculously escaped. Uh, but, you know, we're in touch and I'm in touch with their families and I really, really hope they'll be freed soon. And it's a really big part of the book, I think, but my friendship with these, um, with these amazing uh, fellow political prisoners. Um, that I met there. Yeah, and you do detail those friendships. They're extraordinary. And, I mean, how how is it that you can stay in touch with them, Kylie? Uh, because you also detail in the book that staying in touch with people outside of the prisons is a very difficult thing to do indeed. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, I'm in touch with a variety of people in Iran, but it's quite sporadic. Um, Iran's prison system right now is crippled with COVID. Uh, it's everywhere. They're struggling to get a grip on it. I don't even think they've vaccinated the prisoners, can you believe? So um, uh, my friends, some of them have got COVID a couple of times and have been let out to recuperate at home. So during those brief periods of furlough, I've managed to speak with them. But other than that, it's, it's really difficult. You can send messages into the public prison via intermediaries, but, you know, it is, it is dangerous. So you I have done that before, but you'd normally need a good reason to do so. Um, but some of my friends in Karchak in particular, which is another prison I was sent to, have been pardoned and released or people are let out on medical leave for a few months and then put back in again. So, you know, there's a coming and going sort of nature for a lot of these guys in prison. And due to that, I've been able to stay in touch when they're when they're outside. Yeah, and you detail in the book just how important it was for you, you know, to cope, to have some kind of contact with with the outside world and you were allowed sort of sporadic contact with um, with, with friends and, and, and family. Um, but, but also uh, it's, um, you know, from the outset you were sort of advocating for um, your, your family to go to the media, but at the same time the Australian government was advising against that. And I'm, I'm interested in, in that broader sort of, uh, I suppose, strategy for situations such as yours. Because for us as well, you know, we were following your story and spoke to, you know, some people eventually on air, but also off air who were sort of in our orbit and had talked about the difficulty of advocating on behalf of you, but there was a very large campaign that, that developed and got quite a lot of, of coverage. Uh, what's your sense of, of the, the benefit, I suppose, of, of media coverage and public advocacy to uh, publicise and, and advocate for the release of, of prisoners such as yourself? Uh, it's really, it's a thorny issue because every case is obviously different. And it really depends on the country and the organisation that's taken that person hostage. But in the, in the case of Iran, I think all the evidence points to it being one of one tool in the toolbox that uh, families and governments and campaigns can use for helping that incarcerated person. 
I don't think there's really any evidence at all that that person is harmed in prison as a result of a public media campaign. And this was what was so frustrating to me because I was, you know, crying out for it and telling my parents on the phone, you know, please go to the media. Um, it's it's what I want. I think it will help me. But, you know, the government's approach is no media whatsoever, quiet diplomacy, let's deal with this behind the scenes. Um, I, I certainly saw once my situation was publicised about 12 months after my arrest that my conditions in prison actually improved as a result of public awareness and the spotlight that was shone on my treatment in prison by the media. Whilst the Revolutionary Guards claim that they don't pay any attention to you know, international opinion or what people think about them or their reputation, they do. They do care. And, you know, nobody wants negative media about torturing people in prison or anything like that. The Iranian regime is somewhat responsive to that. And there was greater care and attention placed on my medical treatment, uh, on my access to appropriate food, on the, the conditions in the prison, this sort of thing as a result of the media spotlight. So, for that reason alone, I think it is important to, to recognise that the media can be used in a positive sense as a tool and isn't just something to be fought against and, you know, from the perspective of um, of DFAT and of the diplomats. And, I mean, it's not just Australia. All Western countries seem to take this approach, but I actually think that that's mistaken and that it's sort of a bit stuck in the 20th century in a way. A more dynamic diplomacy of the 21st century can take into account new tools like media, social media, public campaigns launched by families as a means of furthering diplomatic aims uh, against a country like Iran or, or others that take hostages, which, you know, might be more difficult to deal with and which might not be responsive to traditional behind-the-scenes diplomacy. So that was my point. And I think that overall what happened to me shows that that is a correct point in my case at the very least and in the cases of others in Iran. Although, you know, we know that there are actually a lot of Australians held abroad arbitrarily in a variety of different countries, sadly, and in not all of those cases would media necessarily um, be useful, but certainly in mine I thought that it was. Do you, do you feel that your experiences um, and your knowledge, your you know, un, unfortunately, but it's there, the, the, the more intimate knowledge of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and how they operate, do you feel like that's being heard by the the kind you know, the diplomatic circles that 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 are brokering deals such as as yours for other people in Iran, but also outside of Iran, that there are other ways and that there they might be better ways and then the quiet diplomacy that we that we know is used um, it seems to be the the, the go to strategy um, rather than you know, having a look at case by case by case necessarily do you feel like it's it's been taken on board your feedback there? To be honest, no, <laughs> not not taken on board by a government departments. No, there's been actually little interest at all in it. I don't. I, 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 that's my impression. Um, my impression is that a lot of these government bureaucrats, especially ones involved in foreign policy and diplomacy and this sort of thing, they think they have all the answers. They think they know everything, and they don't want an outsider telling them that you know the situation on the ground might be different. Um, but that being said. There is actually a very interesting network of former hostages of Iran and of other countries um, around the world and, and of families of current hostages. And we're all supporting each other and we're trading information and, you know, giving each other tips and ideas. And that's been quite dynamic. 
and I'm involved in the campaigns of several others who are still imprisoned in Iran and several Australians who are imprisoned in other countries. And, um, you know, sharing that information with one another and also helping each other deal with government, um, I think has been a really positive development. And we're seeing families band together and and trade info and ideas um, sort of on the sidelines without you know, necessarily just going through DFAT or going through the foreign ministry of whatever country that, that they're citizens of. So there's a lot, um, I guess, more grassroots campaigning around this issue and the the issue of media in particular, um, as well as how do the Revolutionary Guards operate? How do the Iranian authorities and the judicial system and the prison system operate? If governments aren't necessarily interested in that information, the families of others who are still imprisoned certainly are. And we've been sharing that information with one another, which I think has been really positive. Yeah. And you, you write about the, the really difficult experience as your hopes started to rise of, of being freed, of then having to go back to you know, the, the original prison you're in, Evan Prison, um, and staying there even for one more night, which, which just sounded like the most horrific experience you could imagine, even though you'd spent you know a very long time there. But I wonder if you can talk to us about that lead up to you being allowed to come back to Australia and, and how much sense you had that it would actually happen um, as that date drew closer drew closer? Oh, I was really just bouncing off the walls by that point. I was really not in a good place psychologically. And I'd been, you know, I had my hopes dashed several times in the past about a diplomatic deal. So even when the ambassador, who was fantastic, uh, Lyndall Sachs, she came to the prison 48 hours before my release and I had a meeting with her and she told me it's going to happen this time. You know, wait two more days, we're going to get you out. And I just said, I'll believe it when I see it. Like, I, I just don't, I can't trust anything anymore. I don't want to get my hopes up and, and have them dashed once again. Uh, so even on the day of my release itself, I and the release was delayed by several hours. I was supposed to be out of my cell by 9 a.m. I was still there at 12 midday, didn't know what was going on, what was happening. I was thinking, gosh, again, it's, it's you know, being cancelled or again, it's been postponed or something's, you know, not gone to plan. Uh, I wouldn't let myself hope. And um, I was eventually taken out of the prison, forced to film a propaganda clip in, in front of the gates of Evian, which I did my best to sabotage, and then um, was taken to the ambassador's residence in Tehran and then on to the airport. And even at the airport, I, I didn't properly let myself hope. I, I kept thinking this all could be a charade. They can easily swoop in and pick me up and throw me back in prison again. Um, it was only really when the plane crossed out of Iranian airspace that I allow myself to breathe and say, okay, I'm, I'm free now. Like, I can accept the reality. And I, they can't get me back. They can't get their hands on me again. I'm actually free. And what of your life now, Kylie? Uh, I mean, I, you, I, I think I heard you earlier in this conversation say that you, you were an academic. I mean, how do you, what, what of your career, your academic career? And um, we know it's been, you know, spoken about in other interviews in, in your book, your, your marriage ended when, when you were um, in prison in um, Iran. I mean, you know, how, how do, what is your day-to-day these days? Yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been a roller coaster coming back. I, I lost a lot. Um, you know, it's damaged. Obviously, I lost my marriage. It's damaged my career. Um, I've actually left my job as an academic. 
Um, and it's, you know, it's been hard. My relationship with family and friends has been affected too. And it's just been hard adjusting to normal life again and, and going back to, it sort of felt almost like going back in time. And I'd lost, you know, two plus years of my life that I'll never be able to get back. And it's it's not easy. But I, I'm feeling positive. And as I said, writing the book was a really healing experience for me. It was cathartic in a way. And um, I'm just sort of looking forward to the future now with positivity. And I'm not sure what I'll be doing career-wise, but um, I guess I, I care less about that at, at this point you know, following what happened to me, I feel that it put life into perspective and showed me what's important and being, you know, overly focused on my career and working seven days a week to advance myself in my career isn't really my priority right now. So, um, yeah, it, it gave me some perspective in life. But overall, I, I think I'm in a good place and I'm positive and I'm looking forward to the future, you know, um, optimistically and um, we'll see where I end up. Yeah, well, it's been an absolute pleasure and privilege speaking to you today. As we we mentioned, I mean, we've followed your story and spoken to a number of your your friends over the years, so it really is special having you you on today's show. Um, congratulations on the book; it's a it's a brilliant read, and um, and all the best for for whatever comes in the future. Oh, thanks so much, guys! I really appreciate you having me on too, and thank you for all your amazing support. It's it's lovely to hear. Thanks, Kylie. And um, that's Kylie Moore-Gilbert. The Uncaged Sky is her memoir, My 804 Days in an Iranian Prison is the title of it. And uh, yeah, it's out through Ultimo. Uh, Ultimo Press. Sorry, I've just flicked the book over and a beautiful cover too, by the way, um, Kylie Moore-Gilbert. Thanks heaps. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. How strong will this next parliament be on climate action and environmental protection? Well, that's up to us, but also the policies of whoever forms the government. And to give us a sense of these, we have Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth with us. Um, He joins us monthly on this program, and it's good to have you there. Good morning, Cam. Yeah, good morning. And so surveys tell us, and these are surveys over many, many years now, that climate is a topic that voters want to see more action on, but uh, it hasn't been a huge feature of the campaign so far. Have you learnt anything new about the policies of candidates running for this election, Cam? Yes, it is actually there, but it is really just kind of hidden, uh, unless you're talking about parties like the Greens and the so-called uh, Teal Independents. It's actually quite hard to find uh, a narrative, a consistent narrative from the main parties on climate in particular and environment. And I think that's just because, as we said last time, we knew this was going to be an election focusing on things like cost of living, kind of very bread and butter type issues. And you could argue it's in the interests of both of the, well, all three of the main parties, including the Nationals, not to talk about climate too much. And, I mean, we know there, there are differences, you know, if we look just at the 2030 emissions reduction targets, the, um, the uh, Liberal National Coalition is aiming for a 35% reduction, ALP 43% and the Greens 75%. So that, I suppose there's a clear difference there. But are there other sort of um, important differences in the broader suite of policies that, that each of the major parties and, and the Greens are, are bringing to this election campaign? Absolutely. In the case of the Greens, they have a really, uh, you know, very well thought out uh, series of policies. They've got a whole program called Beyond Coal and Gas. They want to tax the big corporations. They don't want to see any new coal, oil and gas. It gets harder to see daylight between the coalition and the ALP, although there are some really important differences. Um, 
I think the ALP are always scared that the Conservative press will weaponise anything they say about coal and, and all the main parties have this dilemma of they want to say something in the north of Queensland and they want to say something else, you know, in the southern states and so you get this kind of mixed messaging. But, yeah, there's um, been a lot of work has come out from ALP around how they would reduce emissions. So they're... Uh, their emission reduction target, as you said, is higher than what the coalition is offering. They're, they're talking about a 43% reduction uh, by the end of 2030. Um, a lot of that conversation has been bogged down in what, uh, how they would achieve it and what they want to do is uh, basically get the very large emitters, so the big corporations, uh, I think there's about 200, 215 of them in the country, uh, to use a thing called the safeguard mechanism, which was actually something that was created by the coalition uh, that, that pollution caps over time for these big emitters and then they kind of get ramped down and the idea is that uh, encourages the companies to invest in clean technology. But even though the coalition set up this whole mechanism, they're now attacking it and calling it a carbon tax. So the minute you start to get this kind of clear conversation around, well, what might energy policy look under the major parties? It kind of gets weaponised and it turns into this fight and so you get no, you get no clear air and you get very little detail uh, in, in the public domain. And, I mean, interestingly, last week, a group called Climate Analytics analysed climate policies uh, of, of the parties running and found the coalitions would have Australia on a pathway consistent with over three degrees of warming and Labor two degrees of warming and the teal independence in Greens at about one and a half degrees. And if people sort of understand the, the details of the Paris Agreement, it's sort of two degrees to striving for one and a half degrees limit to, to warming that the world's striving for. Are we likely to see any new policies announced that might influence this kind of analysis, Cam? Sadly, I think not, because pre-polling has now opened and so generally what happens is, particularly nowadays with more and more people going to pre-polling, you know, all the big announcements are made before that day, so that is really sad. I'd really encourage people to look up that research. Uh, Climate Analytics did it. And, um, you know, we generally understand the science says that once you go past 1.5 degrees of warming, you're entering the potential for climate catastrophe. You're, You're talking about potentially unstoppable climate change and the fact that the LNP, uh, its current targets uh, would set us towards three or four degrees of warming is actually terrifying. We've had about one degrees of overall background warming since about 1900, so often they talk about post or pre-industrial weather. We've gone up about one degrees of Celsius. It's a little bit more in Australia, but about one degrees globally. And think about what has happened. Look at the the flooding we've been experiencing. Think of the fires of 2019, 20s. Think of the heat waves, you know, that are currently just sitting over the top of India and Pakistan. That is what beyond 1.5 degrees looks like. And I think we should all be terrified that the two major uh, blocks of the main parties uh, taking us towards either two degrees of warming or three to four degrees of warming. It is actually, uh, you know, I know that, that the media loves to get caught in the, you know, the gaff this or, you know, the, the leaders' uh, debate last night were shouting, get caught in the minute detail, but 
there is actually a lot of at stake in this election. Yeah, and uh, in that respect, Cam, I mean, often, you know, we talk about 1.5 degree of warming compared to 2 degrees and, and 3 degrees and, and so on. But given, you know, as, as you just said, that anything over 1.5 degrees warming on, on pre-industrial levels is going to have further, you know, catastrophic consequences for the planet. Why aren't we talking about 1.6 degrees, 1.7 degrees, what that might look like rather than jumping straight to 2? Um, and often when, when it is framed in that way, the assumption is, well, we might just need to cop two degrees of warming then, which, you know, w- would have really serious consequences. Yeah, and I wish I knew because anyone that has looked at the detail of what two degrees would look like would never say let's just cop it because it's just too scary to contemplate. You know, we can already see the warming, the impacts of the warming. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of mainstream journalists seem to get stuck in that cycle of, you know, the minute detail and they're not looking bigger. I noticed today the Age had a really great piece on looking at the extinction crisis. You know, there's some really great reporting that happens out there, uh, but a lot of the kind of political churn cycle type reporting is very much, you know, focused on personalities, focused on you know, the conflict, that sort of thing. We just have very little attention um, at that national level on the policy implications of all of that. If you go back to that climate analytics report, um, you know, they say we need to have at least a 50% reduction by 2030. So the science is very, very clear if we choose to look at it. But unfortunately, what happens is, uh, particularly with the, the, the Murdoch press, is once you start to get any meaningful conversation about climate and difference between the major parties at it gets weaponised and gets turned into, oh, well, action on climate will destroy the economy and it will lead to massive job loss. And then that becomes this kind of closed-loop cycle where we can't seem to break out of that. Business is already changing. Business and investment is now back in renewables and storage. You know, like the world is already changing. All the states and territories have got on. For instance, here in Victoria, we have emission reduction targets beyond what's currently at play at the federal level. But the world is moving. Unfortunately, the federal political cycle and the way that politics works up there is kind of stuck in the past and it's just not able to deal with, you know, the the very real, the very practical day-to-day decisions we need to take about what sort of future that we want and when it comes to climate change what is very clear from science is the window of opportunity is rapidly closing so if we're making decisions now about the next four years of Australian politics what happens after this election you know this is another four years we really don't have to waste under the coalition sadly we have wasted you know over a decade of inaction we're really not you know have gone nowhere and you could argue we've gone backwards this is you know a period of time we really can't afford to waste and uh, I mean the, the so-called teal independence including Minik Ryan running in Kuyong uh, and De- uh, Zoe Daniel in Goldstein have climate as one of their campaign pillars and I mean what's your thoughts around how this might be influencing the the position or the, or the campaign in, in general can because we know that that has they've been under attack and I mean they're certainly seen as contenders in those electorates which are uh, normally held by liberal members uh, do you think that it might have an influence uh, of what happens after the election whether they're elected you know elected by their their local um, people or not it could have a massive impact um, if we look at people like Dali Stegall uh, you know that are that 
are already in power and the influence that they're having, there's no doubt that extra independence will push up the demand for action on climate. And if you keep going back to the polling, we know that people want to see more action, and that's right across the board. That's regional seats, that's inner urban seats, that's in the suburbs, particularly strong amongst women, particularly strong amongst young people. We know that people want it. So the kind of rise of the so-called teal independence or the climate independence is really indicative of the failure of the main parties and particularly the LNP to respond to community concern around the need for more meaningful climate action. And on the international stage, can the ALP is, is proposing to host a major UN climate summit in partnership with Pacific countries if it's elected in the next parliamentary term. How significant is that? Because I'm interested in, in, you know, whether and to what extent a change in government at the federal level in Australia could have a broader impact on, on the international stage. I think that announcement was very significant. So to hold the next conference of parties, um, the COP29 uh, in, in two, uh, 2024, in partnership with Pacific nations would be incredibly significant because we know that climate change is the dominant issue that impacts on all aspects of the economy and the culture in Pacific Island nations. So to say we will share a platform with those nations by definition means that we are going to have a huge focus on climate impacts and what rich nations, high per capita emitting nations like Australia need to do to respond to climate change. So it's a it's a kind of significant move but it's also a clever move because it means that there will be a very deep analysis of Australia's climate um, and emission reduction policies during that uh, conference. Cam Walker's with us, Campaigns Director over at Friends of the Earth. And look, there's so many things we could talk about. Murray-Darling Basin, disaster recovery, transition of cold communities, threatened species, environmental protection. The list goes on, Cam, and we're not hearing heaps about those things as part of the campaign, although they're they're important in, in certain seeds. But, you know, the, the last couple of years, we've heard a lot about uh, gas-led recoveries, and that has been a theme of the past parliament. Um, recently, in, in the last week, we've seen uh, a big... Uh, uh, deal uh, announcement coming with uh, Mike Cannon-Brooks buying quite a, a few shares in AGL. They've got a, a demerger uh, on the cards for AGL coming up. That AGL is the biggest emitter in the country. I mean, what's your thoughts around what could happen in that space? Yes, um, I think when we spoke about this last time, my feeling was it, it wasn't over yet when his initial deal was refused by AGL and the fact he's come back with a, a different way to impact on that company is really fascinating. I think that uh, AGL, like other large companies that are heavily invested in fossil fuels that are attempting to get out are doing the right thing, but they're just moving too slowly. So I think it's really interesting that we're starting to see this really inside track uh, pressure that's building and it's coming from people with money and, you know, how much better that they spend their money on things like this rather than buying up Twitter or, you know, just kind of spending, sending spaceships, you know, off for, for commercial tourism in space. Like this is, a, I think, a really great thing for a very wealthy individual to do. Yeah, well, um, well, next time we speak to you, Cam, we'll be on the other side of the federal election. I suppose we don't know whether we'll have a, a new government at that point, um, depending on what happens with, with the makeup of, of the parliament. But, um, but look forward to chatting to you then. And it's, um, it's been a pleasure having you on the show once again this morning. Thanks. Thanks. Talk to you next time. Cam Walker there, Campaigns uh, Director with Friends of the Earth, joins us monthly on the show talking about a range of issues relating to climate and energy in this federal election campaign. You're on Triple R. Triple
Last Tuesday, the Andrews government delivered its state budget. It came, of course, right in the middle of a federal election campaign and ahead of a state election coming up in November. And while politics is always a factor in election year budgets, there is a lot riding on getting the policy settings right to address some of the many challenges that have been revealed and compounded by the pandemic. Benita Kolovos is Victorian state correspondent with Guardian Australia, and she joins us now on the line. Benita, welcome. Great to have you on at Triple R. Thank you guys so much for having me. And uh, you write in Guardian Australia that Treasurer Tim Pallas has pitched this budget at not one but two elections. What do you mean by that? Obviously, um, we have the state election here in November, but before that, all eyes have been on the federal election in a couple of weeks' time. Um, we all thought that this budget was going to be rescheduled. Last federal election, they waited until the election was over. They... It, it was a little bit awkward. They thought that Labor was going to win and they were going to have a lot more money to play with, um, so they delayed the budget. Um, this time round, they didn't wait, um, and instead they added a whole new chapter um, to it. Um, it was pretty much how the Victorian um, economy has done so well without federal government support. Um, so it was a pretty fair crack at the federal government during an election. Um, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, I picked up that in your reporting, but also that, that vibe there, Victoria's economic recovery, despite insufficient Commonwealth support. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, maybe go to, can you go to a bit more detail mm. there? It's not something that I hear a lot around traps that people are saying Victoria has insufficient Commonwealth support, but the reality is when you look at the numbers, it does bear out that for population uh, and, and so forth and the way that money is distributed to various different states and territories by Commonwealth government that Victoria does come up wanting with regards to infrastructure spending and the like. Can you, you know, go to why the Victorian government might, might want to be pointing this out about now? Absolutely. So um, there were a couple of things that Tim Pallas mentioned in that chapter of his budget and he also did a speech at Parliament um, that dedicated um, quite a bit of time to having a crack at the federal government as well. Um, main point was if you look at the budget that the federal government handed down, um, there wasn't a lot of infrastructure spend based in Victoria. I think he said that um, 6% of infrastructure spending was in Victoria, despite Victoria making up 26% of Australia's population. Um, he mentioned the regional um, fund that Barnaby Joyce set up, it's $7 billion worth and not a single dollar is allocated to Victoria. Um, and then the other big one is GST. So basically this is a deal that was done prior to the pandemic which sees WA, um, who was actually doing quite well economically, hasn't had the impact um, that some of the other states have had due to COVID, end up with more of that share. Um, and currently there's this um, no worse off guarantee in GST, but if that ends, Chim Palace was saying it's going to be a billion dollars worse off every year for Victoria. Um, and then finally, the COVID spend. So during the pandemic, it was pretty much a 50-50 split of hospital funding, um, but in a couple of months' time, that's going to go down to 45% federal government, back up to 55% for the state government. So he's saying if you add all of this stuff up, um, Victoria's getting a dud deal. Um, and, you know, if you, if you look at those numbers alone, you, you 
flight. Yeah, and and you can imagine that really being sort of you know ratcheted up as we, as we near the um, the state election coming up in November. Of course, you know depending on what happens at the federal level um, in mm. just under a couple of weeks. But you mentioned healthcare, and the budget um, paper is, is titled "Putting Patients First. There was a lot of emphasis on on prioritising healthcare. Can you just sort of take us through some of the the headline um, mm-hmm. uh, announcements as part of that, and and to what extent that will deal with the reality of the you know really serious issues? Issues that continue to plague the, the health system? So, yeah, there's $12 billion worth of funding allocated to health, um, $2.9 billion to health infrastructure. That's them committing to building the Melton Hospital that they've been talking about for years, upgrading bio and um, women's and children's, and doubling capacity at Casey and Mercy Hospitals. There's $4.2 billion on the pandemic response, which was things like, you know, the free wraps that they provided at schools and um, for disability um, workers. Then there's, like, $1.5 billion on an elective surgery blitz. There's goals to have 7,000 extra healthcare workers, including 400 triple zero call takers. Um, obviously, it's been, you know, heavily publicised that we've had backlogs at um, emergency departments, we've had ramping, um, we've had people waiting on hold well beyond the benchmarks of triple zero um, and we've had some really unfortunate um, you know, situations where people have died waiting for ambulance to arrive or at an emergency department. So this is something that the government's urgently going to need to fix ahead of the election. We saw in South Australia that Labor there campaigned really heavily on um, ramping and triple zero delays, so I suspect that they don't want it to be a thing here. Um, It's hard to say how much of this will be um, able to deliver that by November. Mm. You know, obviously building hospitals takes years and hiring workers, training up nurses takes years. Um, The one that the ambulance union was really happy about was about $700 million to better at home package. So that's when nurses come to your home to deliver care and rehab and all those sorts of things. So they think that extending that package is probably going to be the thing that can happen quicker. Um, But yeah, we'll have to see how much of this can, you know, get things done come November. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I remember the last the last state election where people did feel because you travel all over Melbourne and you could see the level crossings being removed and you could see mm. the work in place and and so it'd be interesting to see if the the premier uh, and this government in Victoria does make it very visible the where, where money's being spent. But it is interesting what you say about trying to attract so many workers into the health system because we know not just with health workers but also teachers it is a very competitive market at the moment to get people in, you know, nurses, doctors, uh, people to staff when people are in isolation, all sorts of issues there. I mean, what do, did we get a sense of how that might happen? So they're saying about 2,000 workers they're going to um, try and attract from overseas. Like you said, everyone's trying to do that at the moment, so it'll be interesting to see how that's going to happen. Is it ad campaigns? Is it extra money? Um, We don't have a lot of detail. Um, Yeah, they're they're expecting population to return to pre-pandemic levels over the next two years. So when asked if there's going to be anything to, you know, incentivise that, 
there there isn't. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that actually happens. Yeah, it's always interesting to try and get your head around the projections in these kinds of, <laughs> of documents. Um, we're speaking with Benita Kolovos, Victorian State Correspondent with Guardian Australia, all about um, Victoria's state budget, which was delivered last week. And, um, I mean, infrastructure has been a real priority for this government, that, you know, the, the big build has been something that, that Daniel Andrews in particular has really, um, you know, wanted to sort of hang his hat on with level crossing removals and, and all that sort of stuff. Is there much in the, this um, in this budget in terms of infrastructure? Because the, the line from the opposition has been that there have been these well-publicised cost blowouts which have, you know, led to, to growing deficits and, and playing into that narrative that, you know, the ALP doesn't know how um, to manage money properly. But, but how does infrastructure figure up in, in, in this budget paper? Well, it's, um, it's still there and it's kind of funny. Obviously, other years we've had like a massive emphasis on it. This year, not as much talk about infrastructure despite it being um, a significant component of the budget. So I think it's on average $21.3 billion will be spent each year over the next four years on infrastructure. Um, so it's, it's quite a lot when you compare it to the $12 billion on health as well. Um, but the budget papers did reveal that major projects have blown out by about 4% um, and they're taking 20% longer um, to complete than outlined in last year's budget. Part of this is probably pandemic. Part of this could be, you know, the price of everything has gone up and everyone wants the same things. Um, But also they've blamed Westgate Tunnel um, and all the delays on that project in particular for making up most of that um, blowout. So... Um, obviously, we know there was the delays there with toxic soil um, contractor issues that got all the way to court. Um, so, if you take that out, I think it's I think one point nine billion. But I'll have to check. There were so many numbers. Yeah. <laughs> Hang on, that, is this a gotcha moment, Benita? <laughs> I don't know if it's fair to throw that back on a journalist, is it? I'm joking. Like, journalist, right? Like, um, you know, you're not good at math become a journalist and then they lock you in a room for a couple hours with all these numbers. So, <laughs> no, I appreciate how much you've been able to tell us because there hasn't been wide, um, like widespread coverage of the Victorian budget and, and as Dylan said right at the outset, there has been a lot going on and there are lots of things mm. that we need to contend with and we do have this federal election first before we might see people start to focus in on what's happening at the state level. But one thing that I'm really interested in, uh, Benita, is what, what did we hear about mental health? health because we know in Victoria, particularly around young people, but this is across the board, there has been an enormous toll in this city, particularly in Melbourne, with regards to mental health and the lockdowns that that uh, we endured over a couple of years. Do we Did we get a sense of, of what might be there for people as we have this long tail of recovery as people pull their lives together again? So obviously last year we had the mental health levy announced in the budget and the whole theme like this year, obviously the theme was putting patients first, um, but last year's budget was very much around implementing the recommendations of the Mental Health Royal Commission. Um, So that included the levy which guarantees funding to mental health services, um, you know, locked in um, for businesses that make over a certain amount. So this year we, we didn't hear as much about mental health. They're saying they're continuing in, um, you know, getting all those recommendations implemented. They've got that funding arrangement now, so it locks in the funding. So it, it does seem like it's something that's 
more happening behind the scenes as they address those issues in EDs. And obviously a lot of the delays at emergency departments would be affecting people with, you know, ill mental health as well. So um, I guess, yeah, it, it is a little different than last year when we had that massive emphasis on mental health and mental health investment. Yeah, and um, I mean, another one of the, the sort of um, headline areas, I suppose, has been education. There's a whole range of, of pledges um, in terms of, you know, building 13 new schools and, and upgrading mm. 65 existing education settings as well. But but looking through the budget papers, I was also interested in, in what wasn't really there or at least wasn't highlighted so much. And um, and one is, is the area of law and order. And we know that sort of bail and sentencing, the government has said they're not going to, to review that until after the election. This has led to, of course, ballooning prison populations and there's been a lot of criticisms from, you know, those in, in the legal aid um, community, for example, for example, about um, the effect that is having on people, you know, being put in prison for long periods of time, um, perhaps unnecessarily. And also uh, just a few months ago, there was a social housing pledge um, the government announced, which they then um, had to back down on following um, kind of an uproar from, um, from the construction sector. This was to impose a, a levy on developers to, to fund more public housing. But, but were you struck by what sort of doesn't appear to be in this state budget and, and how might that play into what we hear from, from government and the opposition as we, we move closer to an election? To be honest, it doesn't surprise me that some of those things aren't in there. It is an election year and um, unfortunately things like bail reform do kind of get parked because it is contentious. Um, I remember there was a couple months ago a report tabled into our criminal justice system and that did recommend um, overhauling bail and it was very much a we're not looking at this right now sort of um, response from the mm. government. Um, another thing that I thought was interesting was not a lot to do with drug and alcohol rehabilitation. Um, considering, you know, when we did have the Mental Health Royal Commission, there was a lot of talk about, you know, how mental health and drug and addiction treatment is quite siloed. And there was a lot of work being done to try and, you know, deal with both kind of holistically, but not a lot of emphasis on that in this budget. Um, but again, I just think this is one of those things. It's, I don't want to use the government's own lines, but it is pretty much a repair budget in the sense of we're repairing the economy. We've got this pathway to surplus in the future so you can trust us with, you know, managing money um, and then repairing the emergency, um, you know, triple zero ambulance delays, all those things that are making headlines at the moment. So I, I suspect that some of that other more ambitious reform that you do need to explain to the public but does take time, that won't come before November. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, interesting. And just, and finally, uh, Benita, you know, our audiences and look, people all over, all over the state and in Melbourne really do care about arts and culture, music, things like that. Mm. We did see a big pot of discretionary funds. I don't know exactly what it's called in the budget papers, <laughs> but there's money there for future announcements. Should we put it that way? Yeah. Do, do, would you get a sense yet whether some of that might go to, to arts and culture? So it's um, money yet to be allocated. Oh, that's I think how it's is called. Yeah. Sorry, um, I've mislabeled that. No. <laughs> um, I was looking everywhere in that document to try and find it, and it took me a while. It is only about $2.6 billion. So it's not in the scheme of, you know, the Victorian government that does love to splash around 
big figures, it's not that much. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Um, but I assume, you know, there, there are things that don't cost a lot but mean a lot to people. If you're talking about grants and, um, you know, funding for events, smaller events as well. My brother's a DJ um, and he um, was saying that some of these grants are, you know, fifteen, twenty thousand $20,000, which is not a lot for a government. So hopefully that $2.6 will include something for that. Let's hope. Um, thanks so much. It's been great having you, Benita, and uh, let's get you Thank back. You. Uh, Thank really you. Really enjoyed so much, it. Guys. And um, good, and good luck with your reporting too. It's great to have you there at Guardian Australia, Victorian State Correspondent Benita Kolovos. Her first time with us on Triple R in that role, and uh, yeah, really interesting rundown there of the state budget. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.